Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to season three. On this week's episode. Okay, I wanted to record a brief little video about um, the passing of Jose Pepe Baselga. Um, I was uh, caught off guard to hear it this weekend, and um, I was, in fact, quite sad to hear it, which you know might come as a surprise to people who had uh, followed um, the interactions I'd had with Dr. Baselga over the years. Um, but you might not have known, um, you know, we had crossed paths uh, a few more times uh, than just the public stages. Um, and I always had um, quite a great deal of admiration for Baselga. I literally, every time I saw him, I always brought a smile to my face and we would always uh, exchange uh, some comments. And I learned a lot from his work and I thought it might be helpful, at least to myself and maybe to others, um, to talk a little bit about why um, I had such, um, such feelings towards him. Um, so first, I, you know, I was really sad to hear that he passed away this weekend. Uh, he was only 61 years old, um, too young. Um, and uh, I heard that the cause was CJD, which is um, very unfortunate. Um, I think the first time, you know, just to give listeners sense, I think I've crossed paths with Dr. Baselga a few times over the last decade. Um, the first time I met him uh, was, I think, in 2013 at the Pertuzumab ODAC. Um, of course, Pertuzumab was coming up for uh, new adjuvant approval. Um, and we knew that pertuzumab in combination with trastuzumab um, could generate a higher pathologic complete response rate. But the FDA had never used PATH-CR as a surrogate marker, um, and this was the regulatory question. And Basalga, of course, was a speaker on behalf of Genentech uh, to support the approval. And I have no doubt that um, you know he was uh, it, and remains a you know true believer that pertuzumab um, uh, truly is an important uh, drug in in the adjuvant space. And you know we can debate whether or not it should be offered to no negative or no positive bases, patients, and, you know, that's its own debate. Um, but what struck me at this, um, this ODAC was, of course, uh, Tito Fojo, who is then the program director of the National Cancer Institute. He was on the panel, and um, there was a really great exchange between Baselga and Fojo about um, the implications of the Cleopatra study. Uh, so, you know, I think one of the arguments for the approval of pertuzumab was that, yes, we know it improves PATH-CR, but we also know one more thing. We know in the metastatic setting, um, it clearly is associated with a significant benefit, and there's something like a 16-month OS benefit um, in the Cleopatra trial, where, of course, pertuzumab was added to trastuzumab and ataxane in uh, metastatic breast cancer. And people thought that, you know, perhaps that metastatic result, which is so dramatic, um, would give one a little bit more... Um, oomph to kind of approve it in the adjuvant space. And Tito, you know, made an interesting point, which was that in um, Cleopatra, um, you know, you don't know with what rate um, people post protocol on the control arm, were getting a HER2-directed therapy in the second and third line of therapies. And I think, you know, ultimately that result shook out at something like 80%. But if you were really running that trial in the United States, it would probably have been close to 100% in those years. So Tito's point, I think, was fundamentally that uh, at least some of that 16-month difference in Cleopatra was attributable to the fact that by taking pertuzumab, you actually got more trastuzumab because the PFS was delayed. You got more doses of trastuzumab in your body, and some of that 16 months would have been mitigated if you had given trastuzumab post-protocol to all people in the control arm. And Baselga, of course, um, you know, I think he handled the question quite gracefully, um, and ultimately, um, you know, um, I know I've written about this, so no surprise where I fall on this issue, but, you know, I think uh, you got to give Baselga credit. And of course, the drug uh, got the 
got the regulatory approval. But I was impressed by his um, his fire in his belly when I first saw him in 2013. Um, I crossed paths with Baselga a few years again, later. Uh, he came to the National Cancer Institute to give a lunch, and there were a few fellows um, who were invited to have lunch with him and ask him questions. And, you know, like many of such events, it was awfully quiet. Um, so I thought, you know, I'd toss a question out. Um, I think the question I asked Baselga was, um, you know, this was back when data sharing was all in vogue and trial level data sharing was particularly um, discussed. And I asked him, you know, well, what do you think about data sharing, Dr. Baselga? You run many pivotal trials. Um, how would you feel if, you know, third parties said we want access to some of your data because we could potentially learn something that you hadn't studied and you didn't have time to study and maybe um, take this data set and stretch it further? Um, I also hear there's an ethical argument patients feel like when they consent to trials, they believe that that data will be used for all of science. Um, you know, what do you think about this? And and that was when I started to <laughs> started to really see his personality um, because, um, you know, he 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 was totally honest. He was totally honest, and he said, "What are you talking about? What is this data sharing?" I said, "You know, you give some data over, and we reanalyze it." He says, "Which data do you want? You want you want my data? You want my data from the trial?" I said, "You know, whoever runs the trial, I guess that's what we're talking about. Talking about that data." And he says, "You you think you're going to get my data? You're going to get my data?" Is that uh, oh no? You have your data, and I have my data, and we're going to keep it that way. And, uh, and I thought it was refreshing to just hear somebody say that absolutely not. I am not down with data sharing. I don't care what you're going to do with it. This is mine, and that's yours, and and so be it. And um, I don't know. He was just brimming with confidence, and I think people who've interacted with him will see that he is um, extremely passionate, extremely confident, and. No matter how you feel about any issue, you have to admire that in somebody. I admire that in an interlocutor. I admire that in somebody who's willing to push back on you and say what they think and not sugarcoat it. And in this world of academic medicine, that is rare. Um, so, of course, I went off to do uh, my first faculty job in Oregon. And over the years, we crossed paths a few times in um, the literature. I'd written something and, you know, he had criticism of it. He had written something. I had criticism of it, that kind of thing. Um, I think in 2017, I was on a panel and somebody asked me whether I thought every cancer patient should get whole genome sequencing. These were back in the years when there's a lot of lobbying on foundation or not foundation. There's a lot of lobbying to get Medicare to pay for some broad genome panel. And I felt that that was a premature coverage decision. It was going to cost a couple billion a year. Um, and that doesn't include all the downstream costs of investigational drugs that were going to be given in this sort of absolutely undocumented and of one times a thousand experimentation. Um, and I said that, you know, I, th I don't think they should cover it and it was premature. And I think um, those comments, some people may have picked up on it and uh, they scheduled the great debate. Great debate ACR 2018 um, was between myself and uh, an another person, my contemporary around my age, um, David Hyman, who was, um, you know, clearly a, a star in, in precision oncology at the time um, and had done really, I think, important work and important publications. And at least, you know, even even if I am someone who disagreed with whether or not insurers should pay for something, I'm someone who has to recognize that 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 in part, a lot of the data that I was using to make my case was, you know, developed by Baselga and Hyman. So, you know, many of us who are critical of of insurance coverage, of policy, of medical practice, we also have to have some respect for those um, who we disagree with because, um, you know, we're often um, working based on a different interpretation of some of their work. Um, and so anyway, this was the great debate. Um, and I think it was sort of hotly anticipated on Twitter because there had, you know, I had been a provocative person on Twitter, perhaps even more so back then. Um, and of course, they picked the most impartial moderator 
Jose Basalga, <laughs> who's obviously going to have an affinity for his guy, for David. Um, but, you know, we went, uh, I went and uh, beforehand and, um, you know, he had some kind things to say. And, um, you know, David gave his his lecture um, and I, I thought it was really good. I mean, you know, I always, I think the world of David, I think he's a very smart guy. And the way he framed and conceptualized the question was ironically actually like really similar to how I conceptualize the question, um, except he just had a different interpretation of the ultimate result. What do you do with knowing that X percent of U.S. cancer patients are currently benefiting from genome-driven therapy? Is that um, a glass half full situation, glass half empty situation, that kind of thing? I forget the exact prompt. It's, it's something like genome-driven oncology is ready for prime time or something like that. Um, and uh, however, I, you know, we had an ace up our sleeve a little bit, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know how people who attended the debate felt, but, you know, a lot of people thought it was a good, a good spirited debate. But the ace up our sleeve was, um, I put a lot of energy uh, and, and got my team to sort of reorient around this question. And we spent a lot of time investigating what we think the upper bound of how many people were benefiting from genome driven therapy. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that number was something like 9% of people were eligible for genome targeted drugs. And um, we timed it so that as I was giving my debate, uh, literally on Jam Oncology website, the article would drop with the estimate. And that was kind of like my final slide, kind of like the mic drop. Um, and uh, I, I don't know, I think it connected a little bit. It was a, it was a crowd that was clearly on the other side, I think. Um, and, uh, and then we went to the Q and A and Baselga was just characteristically Baselga, which is, he said, you know, um, I'm supposed to be the moderator. Um, and I'm paraphrasing here just based on memory. Um, I'm supposed to be the moderator here, but you know, I have to say everything David said is right. And everything you said is wrong. <laughs> something like that, just something like just, you know, totally unabashedly how we actually felt about things. Um, but you got to love that about somebody. I mean, you got to love that about somebody, especially in this world where people are so reluctant to put themselves out there. Um, and I did like that about him. Um, and, and he had some other uh, kind of choice comments, uh, uh, which was fine, which is which is the nature of the game. You got to play the game. You got to play it. You know, if you want to fight this issue, you got to be able to to fight. And and I and I and I appreciated that. Um, then I guess a couple of years went by, and and of course um, the conflict of interest thing came up um, that uh, I think uh, Jose hadn't um, hadn't. Um, uh, disclosed, uh, you know, conflicts that he felt were not relevant, uh, but that I think you could arguably make the case that they are relevant. And I think people who follow me will know that, you know, there's no secret how I feel about conflicts of interest and disclosure, um, and actually even more probably recusal in most cases. Um, but I guess I felt about it always a little bit of um, that, you know, Jose was never um, it was never about Jose, and that was the problem. And with with I think what had happened after that, that you know. Um, there's that old quote by Upton Sinclair when he wrote The Jungle, I aimed for their heart and I hit him in the stomach, meaning he got food uh, safety regulations passed, but didn't get kind of worker protections passed. And similarly, the kind of the, the story of Jose Basaga and the conflict of interest was really, I think, a story that that should have been about getting us to really reform our conflicts of interest policies. But instead, it became more about, you know, that Jose was kind of pushed to resign which I thought was really not the answer. It's a systemic problem. And he's in quite good company among elite people who weren't disclosing, um, who are participating in relationships that are deeply problematic. Um, anyway, so I always thought it was sort of a, a bit unfair. And I also think it shouldn't define him. Um, I guess I should say, you know, um, in in the years after that debate, because it was, uh, I think, in this, in this narrow niche, it was discussed. Um, there were people who... Um, 
you know, came up to me and told me about Selga stories for years after. I mean, and still to this day, um, they feel like, uh, you know, you're the guy, you're the guy that I want to tell these Baselga stories to. And um, the stories are, they're all over the place. Um, uh, you know, my, the story I heard was that when Mendelssohn was, was working on Trastuzumab, um, of course, Denny, Slamen, um, they had paired it with anthracyclines and that there was this risk of cardiotoxicity and it was Jose who actually suggested that we combine it with a taxane as well. Um, we all know Jose uh, as you know, when he moved to AZ, he was he was really kind of a guy who's always on the gas pedal all the way, really wanted AZ to be the best and would settle for nothing less than the best. Um, I had people come and tell me stories about how, you know, in these rooms with power players where everyone is nature, New England Journal, has a nature New England Journal paper, everyone's well published, everyone is a rock star in their own field, that Jose would come and, you know, his presence was larger than life um, and that he would you know, push people hard, uh, rip apart research that felt was uh, not meritorious or going too slow, um, never hesitated to tell people what he thought. Um, I heard once that he told somebody, uh, where are you going to publish that? And the person was like, I think we're going to aim for like maybe blood or, um, or leukemia, lymphoma or leukemia. Um, and, uh, and he was like, blood, blood, you want to publish in blood? Like, get out of here. This is MSKCC. We publish in Nature or New England Journal, or you can get the hell out. Um, and and I and I don't know that to be true. I heard that secondhand. Um, however, uh, that to me is is really spot on on his personality. And I guess I would say, I guess I would say that I admire that as well. I really do. I really admire somebody who who would, I don't know if people are gonna like me to say this, but I admire somebody who would say that to somebody to say that, you know. What you're telling me is you're at what, you know, I mean, I think he would believe um, you're at the best place. You're at the best place. I mean, I think that's what people who work there believe. I'm not saying that that's true. I'm just saying they believe that. And if you believe that you're at the best place and you want to be the best, then you got to be publishing in the best journals. Um, you got to be doing the best work. You got to be doing the most impactful work. I mean, this is a guy who doesn't believe in participation trophies. And I admire somebody in our world to be like that, to be always pushing, 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 pushing to be better, to be better at whatever you do. And all of the things he told me after these debates in private, when we bumped into each other here or there, they were always, they were, they were, they were never, he was good about separating the fact that um, we may have had substantive disagreements on all these issues, but he never made it personal. It was always about, you know, you want to bring your argument, you better do a better job of formulating. You better bring it, bring it hard because I'm going to push back as hard as I can. And I admire that. I admire that a great deal. And, um, so, you know, I know there are other people who had different, different interactions with him um, and, uh, you know, they're free to share their stories, but I thought he was a, a strong person and um, eh, they don't make him like that anymore. So um, I'm sorry to see, I'm sorry to hear about it. And my condolences to his family. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time. <laughs>